Hello, it's Thursday the 19th of November. I'm John Dennis. Today, EU leaders decide who'll be the first president of the European Council. The main female candidate tells us the system is undemocratic and unfair. If they just sort of pull a rabbit out of the hat uh, after their deliberations, uh, it comes a bit uh, as a surprise and nobody has any idea uh, why, how and on what basis uh, the decision was made. Also today, Jess Cartner-Morley looks at Marks and Spencer's spring collection and detects a whiff of optimism on the high street. Underwear is outerwear, sort of slightly Madonna-esque Lady Gaga underwear, uh, lingerie, boudoir styling kind of look. And Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee gives her reaction to the Queen's speech, the last before the general election. At the end of a parliament, Queen's speeches are always a bit odd because you know that all those bills are not going to get through. What this said was, not dead yet. First, here's Bill Overton with the news. European leaders are meeting in Brussels today to choose the first full-time president and foreign minister. France and Germany are said to favour the Belgian Prime Minister Herman van Rompuy for the top job, ahead of British former Premier Tony Blair. Critics say the appointment is undemocratic since only the 27 leaders of European countries have a vote. The Afghan leader Hamid Karzai is being sworn in for his second term as president after complaints from his opponents and around the world that the election had been fraudulent. His chief rival eventually decided not to take part in a runoff. A senior diplomat accused Canadian soldiers and officials of allowing the torture of detainees in Afghanistan. Richard Colvin, who is Canada's representative in the southern city of Kandahar, told a parliamentary committee that the Canadian military were handing over detainees to Afghan authorities knowing they'd be tortured. He says the officials ignored his warnings. Back in Britain, Newcastle's been named the country's greenest city. The competition by the Sustainable Development Organisation Forum for the Future measures environmental performance such as clean air and quality of life. The organisers said it showed cities with an old industrial heritage could overcome that legacy. Second was Bristol and third Brighton. And finally, a housewife from Kent won a competition to design a kitchen tool to get food out of a casserole. The 65-year-old from Bromley came up with the Scroodle which looks like a flat-sided cup with a handle. Margaret O'Callaghan says it'll scoop up your stew and gravy without spilling a drop. Some morning papers are still talking about the Queen's speech on their front pages. Our political editor reports Gordon Brown hopes new cash will stop the number of young jobless reaching one million before the election. The headline reads, Brown's bid to defuse youth unemployment time bomb. The Financial Times says Brown banks on growth to win votes, arguing the PM has put his hope for economic revival at the heart of his general election strategy. The Times finds members of the Labour Party who are angered by the Queen's speech. It quotes Lord Lipsy and Lord Warner, both health experts, who say the promise to give free care at home to the elderly is irresponsible and unworkable. The Telegraph and The Independent have more spicy political stories. The Telegraph claims six MPs and peers face criminal charges for expenses fraud, while The Independent launches another attack on the billionaire deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, Lord Ashcroft. The paper alleges he lent millions to the disgraced Prime Minister of a Caribbean island. The tabloids all have different leads. The Mirror reports uh, another woman has been charged with paedophile offences in the investigation that started at the Little Ted's Nursery in Plymouth. The Express continues its campaign against having a new president of the European Council with its headline, UK's new Belgian boss is a clown. And the Mail prints a picture of tankers moored in the English Channel, which they say are waiting for the price of oil to rise. It says they've been parked there for months, making millions of speculators. The caption reads, sharks off the British coast. There's more news and sport throughout the day at guardian.co.uk.
European Union leaders meet tonight in Brussels, and over dinner, behind closed doors, they'll decide on who'll be the first president of the European Council. It's been a strange sort of campaign. Most of the candidates, like Tony Blair, are not even willing to say in public that they're standing. The only woman to declare herself a candidate, she even has a Facebook page for her campaign, is Vyra Vitcher Freiberger of Latvia. This is a part that uh, I find very strange and I have spoken out against it. I can see that if the treaty says that the 27 have the privilege of deciding, so be it. Uh, but the rest of us would like to hear uh, whom they are choosing among. Uh, I mean, uh, if, if they just sort of pull a rabbit out of the hat... Uh, after their deliberations, uh, it comes a bit uh, as a surprise and nobody has any idea uh, why, how and on what basis uh, the decision was made. Now we have a lot of speculations in the newspapers, but they are not official. Uh, we have rumors of people who are supposed to have support when we know very well that all countries have not been consulted in that regard. Uh, and so rumors fly, uh, etc., uh, they might well fly about the decisions and the support, which, which nobody is making very public right now because they want to, uh, to really reserve that for the meeting when they have a chance uh, to do it face-to-face. -face. But publicizing the candidate seems to me an elementary step in making the process more transparent and open. It must be frustrating for you as a candidate not really knowing who you're supposed to be debating with. Well, you see, there is no debate. I, I would have been quite happy if there had been hearings, for instance, of the candidates, uh, television debates or, or hearings in front of the 27, so that you have a chance uh, to actually be heard. And virtually every name that has been put forth or, or discussed, even if it hasn't been formally put forth, is, is a man. What do you think that is? Well, I think Europe is really um, retrogressing uh, in gender equality. It's very sad because here we are uh, sort of uh, trumpeting our, our democratic institutions and setting ourselves up, as I have myself used the phrase, as a beacon to the world in terms of uh, democracy. Well, I don't think we're shining very bright when it comes to gender equality. How would you like the EU president to be selected? I think really if one opened it up, if, if people sort of uh, the countries would present uh, their candidates... Uh, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt to have uh, television debates, even if it's not a, a citizen vote, as it is, say, for a president of the United States or something, or, or in each country, uh, in those that have uh, uh, universal suffrage for it. To have hearings in front of the 27 would not hurt. Uh, it would take time, clearly, especially since it seems that there, um, Mr. Reinfeldt has in, indicated that there are lots of uh, candidates. Uh, well, uh, that would then take time, I suppose, for the 27 to listen to them. Uh, but it uh, wouldn't be a bad idea to, to actually talk to these candidates as they are selecting them. Vyrovich of Freiburger, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash EU. Also on The Guardian's website. Hello, I'm Dennis Campbell, the health correspondent at The Guardian. Uh, today at the society section of The Guardian website, I have done uh, a story about how men who drink large amounts of alcohol weigh in excess of the government's uh, recommended safe drinking limits can actually be benefiting their heart health. 
by greatly reducing their risk of getting coronary heart disease. A surprising finding. Also at the site today, we've got a, a piece by my colleague Owen Bocott about concerns among senior doctors that if the swine flu pandemic second wave uh, gets much worse, Britain may run out of intensive care beds for children affected by the pandemic. For further details on these and other stories, uh, please go to www.guardian.co.uk slash society. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. Anyone who hoped that freedom of speech and political dissent would be tolerated in Cuba under President Raul Castro will be disappointed today. Nick Steinberg is author of a new report for Human Rights Watch. We found a a wide range of, of cases of people who were punished for the government for expressing fundamental uh, rights. So they range from people who tried to set up independent unions, people who published articles that were critical of the government in foreign on foreign websites, people who are human rights activists, people who belong to unofficial political groups, any form of dissent uh, against the government is dealt with very severely in Cuba. And what happens to those who step out of line? Well, this report documents a range of tactics that the government uses to repress dissent. One is imprisonment. In particular, under the Raul Castro government, we've seen an increased use of a dangerousness provision, which is in the Cuban Criminal Code. It's been there for a long time, even before he came to power. But this law allows the government to lock people up before they have committed any crime on the suspicion that they will commit an offense in the future. So it's a pretty Orwellian uh, piece of legislation. And increasingly what we found, this is Raul Castro's repressive tool of choice. This is what he uses to lock up dissidents. Well, sitting alongside you, Nick, uh, in our Washington bureau is uh, Daniel Wilkinson, Human Rights Watch's Deputy Director for the Americas. What difference has the U.S. embargo made to human rights in Cuba? Well, the U.S. embargo has been in place now for almost 50 years, and it's really hard to think of a single policy with a longer track record of complete, utter failure. Uh, It has done nothing to bring around a positive change in Cuba. It's caused enormous hardship to the Cuban people. And the only beneficiaries have been uh, the Castros and the Cuban government. They've used the embargo as an excuse for all their problems as a pretext for committing the kind of abuses we document in this report. And, you know, rather than isolate uh, the Cuban government, what the embargo has done is isolated the U.S. government on its Cuba policy uh, as countries uh, around the world, across the political spectrum, uh, see uh, a situation that uh, Cuba plays as if they're David standing up to the U.S. Goliath. So we think uh, as long as the embargo is in place, it's very hard to hope for any change. There's always a lot of focus on uh, the um, policy of the United States towards Cuba because the you know, United States is the big and powerful neighbour. But what about the um, policies of the European Union and also the other Latin American countries? Well, we see the European Union has had a policy of uh, constructive engagement. Uh, that has not been any more effective than the U.S. policy. Uh, It hasn't brought about uh, the reform that's needed in Cuba. Uh, And right now, we're particularly concerned that the uh, Spanish foreign minister has recently said that when Spain uh, assumes the presidency of the EU in January, Spain will push for abandoning that, that policy. Now, the policy hasn't been effective. But, uh, but to abandon it completely will send the message that uh, Europe, 
uh, really doesn't care about the human rights situation and about the state of uh, the, the, the situation with political prisoners in Cuba. So that would be a mistake. What we're proposing is that the U.S. needs to lift the embargo. But what the Obama administration should do is go to Europe uh, and European countries, also Canada, and uh, to the extent possible, Latin American countries, and propose an alternative, which would be a multilateral approach, an international coalition focusing on one specific concrete demand, which is that Cuba release all its political prisoners. Daniel Wilkinson from Human Rights Watch. I'm John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, the X Factor's Ridian Roberts on classical music, Simon Cowell, yes, and Jedwood. Any one of those competitors walking on the street now, most people would want to have a look, a glimpse at John and Edward. But first, on the same day that Marks and Spencer named its new chief executive, the current Morrison's boss Mark Bolland, it unveiled its new spring collection. The Guardian's fashion editor, Jess Cartner-Morley, told me what we'll be wearing in a few months' time. One of the key trends is a kind of underwear as outerwear, sort of slightly Madonna-esque Lady Gaga underwear, uh, lingerie, boudoir styling kind of look. Um, it's a look which I think is going to hit the high street in quite a big way because Topshop also showed their new collections yesterday and they went very much for the same angle, which uh, if you have something showing up in two big names like that, it tends to mean it's a pretty surefire hit. Is this the sort of thing that uh, British people might go for in a big way? I mean, it strikes me as being a, a kind of typical kind of, you know, British look in a way, slightly outrageous and slightly funny, really, as well. I think that's exactly right. I think that's partly why it's been picked up by the high street, because this season's catwalk trends were quite sort of underwhelming, I think we could say, really. There wasn't really a great big look. There was no kind of pink is the new black moment that happened on the catwalk and the British uh, fashion shopper does like to do something different every season it's not like the French when you know they just do their French thing all the time but the English likes and like a new look and they like something that's a bit exciting and a bit wow and that's why uh, I think people have go, are going to push this one. And what about the effect of the recession on high street fashions how's that been reflected in these collections that we've seen this week? I think what's noticeable this week as compared to this time last year is there's a much more optimistic mood. This time last year, I mean, if you remember that first week in December, there were all those pop-up sales and there was a real air of absolute panic on the high street. Um, And I think what a couple of people have been saying this week is what they learned from that is to ride things out and to keep your customer, you have to stick to your guns and you have to show them something different and that their people will still buy something if they if you give them a reason to, to need it or desire it. And how important is uh, Marks and Spencers now to high street fashion? Because it's kind of been squeezed from below with companies like Primark and above as well with sort of online sale sellers such as Bowdoin. That's very true. I think Marks and Spencers still occupies a unique place in... British culture really I think you only have to spend a um, 10 minutes on the shop floor to see the what Marks and Spencer's its kind of strength and weakness is that it is such a broad church everybody shops at Marks and Spencer's to some degree whether it's buying their whole wardrobe or just buying underwear or bits and pieces or going there for particular things that they like and everybody kind of expects it to cater to them Uh, and that's something so they can't kind of please everybody and I think what tends to happen with Marks and Spencer is they tend to slightly veer around from targeting uh, chasing a very fashion forward consumer to sometimes sort of retreating into their more comfortable comfort zone of kind of middle-aged dressing. Jess Cartner-Morley.
Gordon Brown has drawn the battle lines between now and the next election. He used the Queen's speech to spell out Labour's priorities, pensioners, parents and economic recovery. My government's overriding priority is to ensure sustained growth, to deliver a fair and prosperous economy for families and businesses as the British economy recovers from the global economic downturn. Through active employment and training programmes, restructuring the financial sector, strengthening the national infrastructure and providing responsible investment, my government will foster growth and employment. My government will also strengthen key public services, ensuring that individual entitlements guarantee good services and will work to build trust in democratic institutions. In the Commons, the Conservative leader David Cameron asked Gordon Brown about what wasn't in the government's programme. And what about the three letters that I believe should be in any Queen's speech? NHS. Not a mention. It is clear the National Health Service is not this government's priority. The simple fact that even this country cannot ignore is that sometime in the next six months, he's going to have to stop dithering, leave the bunker, go to the palace and finally ask what we've been calling for for the last three years, a dissolution and a general election. Instead of wasting the country's time and inflicting further damage, why doesn't he just get on with it? Mr Speaker, the Conservative Party have been wrong on every single issue we have faced in economic policy this year. They've been wrong on the fiscal stimulus, they've been wrong on what we've done on employment, they're wrong on dealing with the recession, I believe they're wrong on inheritance tax, they're wrong on social care, they're wrong on law, law and order. Our changes are for the many and not the few, and I commend them to the House. Well, it was the last state opening of Parliament before the election, which always makes for an interesting Queen's speech. Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee. At the end of a Parliament, Queen's speeches are always a bit odd because you know that all those bills are not going to get through. What this said was, not dead yet. Here was Labour's programme, a lot of it will be in the manifesto, of things it still wants to do. It wants to show that it's uh, still got plenty of ideas and still plenty of life left in it, despite three long terms. Run us through some of the ideas in this Queen's speech, because it focused on social care and financial regulation. The most important thing of all in there, uh, possibly a kind of tombstone, is the commitment to cut all the deficit within four years. I mean, that is a really binding target and very hard. If there were a double-dip recession, for instance, what then? It's putting uh, handcuffs on this chancellor or on any future chancellor to say you must, you must hit that target. Of course the Conservatives are going even farther. They're, they're saying we will outdo that target. But it's, uh, you know, Brown had to break his own previous golden rule. Uh, what do you do if you put it in law? Does it really make a difference? It is a very firm commitment. They've also committed to uh, raising school standards and improving care for the elderly living at home. The social care element is very important because it really is Labour's big offer for the uh, manifesto that they are going to have a way, a, a national insurance kind of way or a way of attaching to people's inheritance uh, after they've died so that everybody can get free social care. And I think that's going to be the great issue for the future is you know, we've got an ageing population, many more people in need of care, people not wanting to have to 
lose their homes to pay for their care. So this is just a bit of a taster, really, for what will be the main cause, which would be the manifesto. How much of these new laws can actually pass through Parliament? The Conservatives are playing a very crafty game. They're saying, oh, we'll vote for all these very good things in the House of Commons, knowing perfectly well that their peers in the House of Lords, under their instructions, will scupper most of them, things they don't like. For instance, the very important Equalities Bill, which for the first time will put a legal duty on local authorities, on any public authority, to consider the gap between the rich and the poor in implementing any policy. So if, for instance, you're putting some new health clinic down in an area, they have to consider whether it should really be going in the area where the people's health is poorest and not in the area where people make most noise, which might be the richest. So it's quite a profound change. The Conservatives will vote for it in the House of Commons, they said today, but of course knowing that their Lords will scupper it. This is something of a mini-manifesto. Is this going to change the political weather for Gordon Brown? Gordon Brown's in a place now where it's very difficult to change the political weather. It's very difficult to be heard. Uh, A whole range of very good practical things that people will like. They will like the idea their children can get uh, one-to-one tuition if they fall behind at school. They'll like the the idea that you get free social care if you're really, really sick at home. But it's very hard to make much impact or to get much traction when the perception is you're on the way out, the polls are all against you, Cameron's going to be the next leader anyway. Are people listening? That's Labour's problem, to be heard. Polly Toynbee. And there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. The unreachable star. The Welsh baritone Ridian Roberts was cast as the villain in the 2007 series of The X Factor, much like Jedwood in the current series. He reached the last two, only to be beaten by Leon Jackson. Ridian told G2's Hannah Poole, what that felt like. It was a good year to be in for me. It worked out better for me in the long run. I mean, obviously, I was disappointed the day after, thinking, oh, that's a shame. And, but then um, it's been well documented that, that Simon rang me the day after and, and said how uh, unfortunate I was and disappointed he was, that whatever. He was very complimentary uh, and then said, uh, I'd like to sign you up. That's another point that which seems to have come across much more this year, that everybody's really just waiting for Simon's comments. Yeah, I mean, he can make, make you or break you. I mean, if he, if he slagged me off every week and said, you know, Rock Rillian, you're not going to win this competition, you, you, he wouldn't have signed me. I, I would have been doing something completely different. Do you worry about being seen as credible by the kind of classical snobs? There, there'll always be people who dislike you, uh, but hopefully there'll be, be, be some that, that love what I do. And I know I've got some devoted fans and they've been great to me from, from the word go. I think this album will please uh, a wide demographic of fans because it's not highbrow opera that's going to go over people's heads. Or conversely, rather, it's not pop music that uh, you know the classical musicians are going to think, oh, crumbs, that, that, that's a lame effort calling yourself a classical singer. Yeah? I'm under no illusions, you know, you're... Radio 3 listener, it's probably not going to take kindly to it. And I don't expect them to. It's not like, oh, look at me, I'm an all-serious classical artist. It's not about that. It's about bringing my kind of music to the wider public, but doing something a little bit different from your average 
X Factor jukebox. So let's talk about this year's show. Do you uh, do you have a favourite? I don't, and that's what's making this year so interesting for me because they're all so even. There's no clear winner in my opinion. So what do you think of the twins? I think um, they're great for the show. It's entertaining. Talent-wise, it's obvious. I mean, they're not they're, they're not very talented. But actually, if there was any any one of those competitors walking on the street now, most people would want to have a look, a glimpse at John and Edward. Riddy and Roberts talking to Hannah Poole. The producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily were Andy Duckworth, Raina Miller and Tim Maybe. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening. <laughs>